This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. More than the fuchsia funnels breaking out of the crabapple tree, more than the neighbor's almost obscene display of cherry limbs shoving their cotton candy-colored blossoms to the slate sky of spring rains, it's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. When all the shock of white and taffy, the world's bubbles and trinkets leave the pavement strewn with a confetti of aftermath, the leaves come. Patient, plodding, a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us, a return to the strange idea of continuous living despite the mess of us, the hurt, the empty. Fine then, I'll take it, the tree seems to say, a new slick leaf unfurling like a fist to an open palm. I'll take it all. In July of this year, the Mexican-American poet Ada Limon was named the Poet Laureate of the United States. And uh, in an interview, Limon said that she likes to call things as they are. And right now, she added, all I want is a story about human kindness. And I was thinking about how strange it is that for so long the story has been that kindness and goodness doesn't sell, right? That true artists creating authentic work won't give shape or sound to what is simple and beautiful and ordinary. It's strange, or, or perhaps not so strange, that underneath that story is our hunger for exactly that, right? the simple, the beautiful, the kind, and the ordinary. And it's not that kindness is elusive, I think it isn't, or endangered, or even particularly rare. But I think it is that we have to set it in our sights and focus and hold it still and there, and present, because there's so much other jostling for our attention. And it's not that her poetry is all kindness or is all beauty, just as Mary Oliver's isn't, and which sells so well. <laughs> but that I think she, like Mary Oliver, has a, a deep appreciation and willingness to not shy away from what is there, sometimes 
sharp-edged, but often so beautiful. And so I know that I speak often of beauty and of the ordinary and of the wonder of a human life, partly to remind myself, partly to remind all of us of the strange idea of continuous living despite the mess of us and the hurt and the empty. Because I think it is something worth returning to again and again, this idea of continuous living, continuous living on purpose. A simple way, I think, to to describe what a a spiritual path gives us. And continuously on purpose, meaning to live our lives like we mean it, (laughs) we mean them. And so this, this poem that I read by Limon is called Instructions on Not Giving Up. And she does write about war to some extent and about inequality and about injustice, about the planet's degradation and our own slow decay. And we know, right, that there are greed, anger, and ignorance from time without beginning, and there is also life. And what life? (coughs) The accidental and the immutable. I quoted the writer Philip Roth in one of my, my newsletters. The elusive and the graspable, the bizarre and the predictable, the actual and the potential, all the multiplying realities entangled, overlapping, colliding, conjoined. And I think especially, you know, the actual and the potential are our field of play, our field of practice, because we are constantly, mm, because we're constantly in that liminal space, right, between what we see as possible, what we're able to live, to enact, what we would like, what we aspire to. But that's, that's one of the things that I've always have found so astonishing, just the sheer reach of our capacity. You know, like that, that beautiful image that she gives of that green leaf that slowly and obtrusively just unfurls at the end of winter after a great loss, a sharp break, or just a long dry spell where it seems like nothing in our lives 
is working or nothing's happening. That capacity that we all have to say, despite everything, I'll take it. I'll take it all. I'll take this less than perfect body. I'll take this harried mind. I'll take these five minutes that I have to sit down and breathe. I'll take this crying baby in my arms. And I will enter the kindness there. Which only means I won't resist that moment. I won't fight that moment. For just this one instant, I will not want things to be otherwise. And I have come to the conclusion at this point where I find myself after three decades of practice that I may not find a more challenging task to take this as it is. Perhaps that is also why I speak of this so often. To take this time, this place, and there, here, to do my continuous living. And how? And how do you do that? I think, at least in part, or maybe to start, to catch those thoughts that whisper in the back of our minds, not enough, not enough, not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. Others are not doing enough. Practice is not enough. My partner is not enough. My body is not enough. If only I sat more, if only I had more time, more money, more quiet, more energy, more aspiration, more capacity. To catch those thoughts and not let them proliferate. To catch those thoughts and not let them proliferate. In the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the Buddha offers five ways to work with unskillful thoughts or signs, as he calls them. And some of you know this series. I have shared this with some of you. But I've, 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 I've taken this um, and I've distilled it to five actions, which to remind myself, I, I called switch. And the first one is switch. The second one is to warn. The third one is to ignore. The fourth one is to trace, and the fifth one to chop, switch. And so first of all, you have to notice, oh, there's a thought. I need to sit more. And just grab it, just just notice it, grab it by its tail and kind of like hold it up. To notice when it's actively getting in the way of our continuous living. And how does it do this? Well, it creates a bump 
or a crack or this a sharp corner that you can't see around. Or sometimes it leaves a trail, kind of like that, you know, if toilet paper gets stuck in the back of your pants, <laughs> it's awkward and it doesn't let you move freely. And it's kind of like that. It's kind of like embarrassing like that. You see the trail of these thoughts, you know, just mm, sweeping behind you. It makes you self-conscious. It keeps you conscious of self, which is heavy and gets in the way. And so first, really, you know, before the switch is to notice that. And then actually, before I go into the sequence, I was reading this morning, this article in the New York Times about this town in Bavaria in Germany, where every 10 years, the whole town comes together, whole town of, of about 5,000 people, and they put together a play for the Passion of Christ, a passion play, every 10 years. And they have been doing this pretty much every 10 years with a couple of exceptions due to war, the First World War, then the pandemic. Because in 1633, the plague, the bubonic plague was sweeping through Europe and it killed one out of four people in the town. And so all as, as, as it was happening, all of the villagers gathered together and they stood in front of a cross and they made this vow. They said to God that if, if God spared them, they would perform a passion play every 10 years until forever. And legend has it that since they began, no one else, that the, that the moment they began the following year, 1634, that nobody else died. And so the, the latest play, which was going to be, I think, the 42nd uh, enactment, was scheduled for 2020. And it had to be postponed because of the pandemic. But it's playing now with a cast of 2,500 people, so half the town, essentially. And millions of people from all over the world, they, it, it goes for about five months, and millions of people from all over the world travel specifically to see it. And over time, they've made a lot of uh, changes, one to the cast, before everybody had to be Catholic to, to be in the play. Now they, they have people who are, you know, they have Jews, they even have two Muslims in big roles. One of the Muslims is playing Judas. <laughs> and to prepare, the previous year, so on Ash Wednesday of the previous year, all the men stopped shaving and cutting their hair. So they will look the part by the time the play rolls around. And of course, the thing is, this becomes a, 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 an all-out affair, and it's not just the play. Not all of them are religious, but many of them are, and certainly many of the, 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 the tourists who go go to see a story lived in order to revive their own faith. They're going to see the story reenacted so they can remember the truths that they themselves are living by. 
And I bring this up because, not in such a dramatic way, but we are, we are moment to moment carefully enacting and hopefully constantly studying and revising the play of our lives, right? And the very detailed script that we follow is telling us where to stand, when to open our mouths, what to say, in essence, how to act. Are we aware of that script? Like, do we know what it says? <clears throat> Can we read the stage directions? Because if we're not familiar with it, I mean, it doesn't take much to, 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 to see what will happen. You get on stage and you improvise. And it could go very well or not so well at all. And so you could say that this is our way of, 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 <coughs> excuse me, of doing a close reading and making revisions so that the play, this dream, is the best one that we can possibly star in and offer everybody else. And so you catch an unskillful thought. I hate my body, for example. And is that kind of thought that you can let go of, right? Is that feeling that weighs you down? And so first you work with it by switching it with a skillful version of itself. I love my body. I'm not enough. I'm whole, just as I am. I'm perfect, just as I am. I don't have enough time. I have now. So every time that thought pops its head, you notice, and you switch. It's like switching the channel. Because by themselves, these thoughts have exactly the same weight. They take up, fundamentally, they take up exactly the same amount of space, you could say, in your mind. It's just that the first has karma behind it and has momentum. And maybe you've been thinking that thought, you've been saying it to yourself for years. And so you have to change the channel until the time you realize, oh, I can just turn off the TV. Well, I, there's no TV even to begin with. Right? But at first, you know, you have to change the channel from, from something like CSI to a cooking show or the Discovery Channel. And notice, and notice how strangely drawn we are to the blood and gore. How we love to beat up on ourselves. But then someone says, well, what if you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I love you? And you're like, no, I can't do that. Just notice that. And so the first um, teaching and the first tool is to replace, the Buddha said, to replace an unskillful sign with a skillful one.
and the traditional image is that it's like a carpenter who's knocking out a, um, a coarse peg with a finer one. I, I was thinking of a, a game of croquet, right? You have that black ball and it's not getting anywhere. You knock it out with another ball, a green ball or a red ball or a blue ball. And, but your aim does have to be sure. It has to be precise to hit it through that hoop. So, so the thought needs to match. Right, the, the, the skillful and the unskillful signs have to match enough for you to, so that you'll be able to recall, mindfully, remember sati, to bring to mind, okay, not this, but that. That's switching. The second option is to warn yourself of the danger of a hurtful thought. So to first ask yourself, is this satisfying thought? Is it helping me? Will it liberate me or will it keep me bound? But then we have to take another step and point out to ourselves the danger of continuing to harbor those thoughts. So we all know and understand perfectly well that if we stand in front of a plant and pour boiling water on it or poison will kill it. Just so we have to stay our own minds when we're hurting and our weird way of coping is by poisoning ourselves. <clears throat> I just had this image. We just saw, a few of us saw uh, that um, new movie about Macbeth and the weird, the three sisters, the three witches are the weird sisters. Double, double, toll and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. I mean, that language is just magnificent. Really, you could just close your eyes and listen to the whole movie. <clears throat> But that, that image, you know, of those, those dark and gnarly and weird sisters hovering over that, that foggy and foul brew. We could actually use that image. We could use that image. That self-loading thought is like that or the thought that objectifies another, the thought that dismisses life that is inhuman, right? That says the human is, is uh, pinnacle and everybody else is, everything else is there to serve us. The thought that throws something or someone away. And so the sutra says, we reflect on the danger of our thoughts, I'd say warning ourselves of their effect. And the image that the Buddha gave is that you have, it's like having the corpse of a snake or a dog or a person hung around your neck. And I can't improve on that image, so I'm going to let it stand. Because sometimes we're impervious to danger, but if suddenly we notice, oh, there's a corpse hanging from my neck, I mean, you know, we'd be horrified. We'd be disgusted. 
And I think I wonder if that's really, you know, so to reflect on the danger of such thoughts, maybe it doesn't quite get to the visceral reaction of what he's really pointing at here. It's, 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 it's every hair of your body standing on end and being like, do not go there. I think that's more accurate. And so is that, that warning, that warning sign. <clears throat> and when I was describing this to, to someone, they said, oh, but then if, if this is happening during zazen, does that mean that we're talking to ourselves? Yeah, it, it does. And you know, it took me too long to understand that that was fine, that, that sometimes that was necessary. That seeing a thought, letting it go and coming back was not always going to cut it. And so that I needed to be able to discern, to understand this is a thought, what kind of thought, and as I often say, what kind of antidote do I apply to it? And sometimes that means talking to myself. I mean, you know, we're studying Shantideva. He does this all the time. You know, he warns himself, he berates himself, he inspires himself, he challenges. He's constantly saying, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, this is what you can do. And so, in this case, is to remember, to say to yourself, this thought is hurting me. This thought is robbing me of life every time I think of it. This thought makes everything heavy and dark. That's how we shed that corpse and return to ourselves. <coughs> the third option is to ignore the thought. Right? Just as you would cover your eyes to not see something you don't want to see. And in fact, that is the image that the, that the Buddha gives. Um, you know, it's like you're with a group of friends and somebody's speaking about a movie and they're going to tell the end and you cover your ears and you cover your eyes, you cover your ears, sorry, and you're like, la, 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 like that. <laughs> you know, actually, my grandfather once told me the story. He went to the movies. They loved the movies. They, were, they would go all the time. And um, they go in to watch a mystery. And some guy runs in as the movie's beginning, the first five minutes of the movie, and says, the killer is blah, 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 and runs out. That is your idea of fun. I mean, that is how you spend your time, which has nothing to do with what I'm saying, but <laughs> I mean, really. So this is, you, you, you cover your eyes. You, 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 but it's not really, you know, ignore fits with, with switch, but it's, um, it's not giving the thought airtime. That's really what it is. I mean, we do this all the time. I mean, that is the see a thought, let it go, and return to the breath. So I'm not going to focus on this thought. I am going to set it aside and focus on something else. And so if you haven't been able to switch the thought, you haven't been able to warn yourself about the dangers, the effect that it may have on you, you ignore it. 
Or maybe you go straight to ignoring it, right? It depends on the thought. And so this is where you need to, to, you need to discern. I've, I've used this, this uh, sequence since I first read about it a few years ago uh, in lots of different moments of my practice, both on and off my cushion. And there are times when I, I one because I had time and one because of the nature of the thought, I actually made my way through the sequence. You know, I wasn't able to let go with this. I wasn't able to let go with this. I wasn't able to let go with this. And so I made my way through, but very often it's like, oh no, this kind of thought requires this antidote. And so I would just go straight to that. Because also each of these does require a little bit more investment and kind of careful observation on your part. Like with each one, you have to, you have to really ask yourself, what is needed here? Right? For, with this one, you know, when my brother died, um, I knew from the beginning that if I spent any time on thoughts like, if only I had dot, 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 done this or that or said this or that, I was just going to bury myself in a hole. And so I very, very deliberately vowed to myself to not go that way. You know, whenever I would notice that thought, oh, if I had just stop, and I would, and I would, uh, another way to think about it is um, deflect or re, reroute, I mean, which is the, the, the switch, but it, first is the stop, they ignore, don't, don't go there, and then maybe you can reroute. And, and that is, in fact, you know, so that's what's necessary. How, how do I best stop this train of thought in its tracks, right? Does it require diplomacy? I'm talking to myself, I'm negotiating. Does it require deflection? Does it require just brute force, which is the last option? And so this is a process, as my, my friends Lama Zopa and Lama Yeshe say, of, of meditative inquiry. Right? So that is why you're not just sitting there quietly focusing on your breath. You're, 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 you're actively engaged with your thoughts. You're not doing this all the time. It, this is for thoughts that require this so you can let go. The fourth teaching is to trace the path of the thought to get to the root. Right? The sutra gives a rather technical term, to still the thought formation of these thoughts. But it's essentially, you're, you're, you're trying to get to the root, the source. And the, the example the Buddha gives is that he's walking fast and he thinks to himself, why am I walking fast? Why don't I walk slowly? And he begins to walk slowly. And then he thinks to himself, well, why am I walking slowly? Why don't I just stand? Why don't I just sit? Why don't I just lie down? Why don't I steady my mind? Right, so with each one of these postures, he's, he's calming the mind and stilling the formation of that thought. So by tracing, I don't mean you trace it to the root in order to understand it. Why do I, am I thinking this way? Oh, it was because my mother when I was five. It's, it's tracing it to the root source and in a sense resting in that source 
which is still and silent. But you can get to that by asking, what is the cause of this thought? And what is the cause of its cause? What's behind this thought? I think of it as diving, right? So on the surface, there are all these colors and shapes and sounds. And as you begin to go deeper and deeper, it gets darker and more still, and there's less. You know, there's just less, less life, there's movement. Actually, there's still quite a bit of life. But there's less movement. Right, so stilling the thought formation, tracing the thought to its source. Which really, if you think about it from a practice perspective, <coughs> is finding, finding the origin of that thought. And if you can really see that, then really you don't need to do anything else. And lastly, if all else fails, you chop the thought at the root. The sutra says, you crush mind with mind. And the unfortunate image that the Buddha gives is that it's like a weak man being crushed by a stronger man. So I, I, I do not uh, usually quote it. I think of it as reading myself the riot act. Right? It's that moment where you just, you say enough. You know, the, the, the blooming of an addictive thought that you know where it's going to take you. And the image that came for me, that came up for me as I was writing it, of writing this was, um, you know, when I was little and asking my mom, you know, mom, can I do? And she'd be like, no. Well, why? Because I'm your mother and I say so. End of conversation. I mean, I always try to argue. But really, at the end, you couldn't refute that because I say so. That's actually the attitude. So, so it's not so much that you crush mind with mind, that you're using brute force, is the moment in which you remind yourself who's holding the reins of your mind. The moment in which you, you remind yourself of that parental mind that says, I want to be free more than I want to be right. I want to be free more than to have my cake in this moment. Not because having your cake is bad. Again, these are for thoughts that are hurtful. And so all reasoning exhausted, you just, you do what needs to be done. And like with Manjushri sword, you cut, you chop off what's holding you back, what's weighing you down. It's a switch. Warn, ignore, trace, chop. And whatever you do, do not give up. Right? Do not give up. Because you can expect that given how involved this is, there are many times you're not, I mean, you're not going to get, a, get past the first one, or you won't remember 
or you won't know how. And that is um, one of the advantages of hearing these teachings over and over again is to each time get it, getting it to get it more and more in your body, to have it be um, within reach, easy reach. Because, you know, even though these descriptions, once again, are, are, are quite involved, the actual process is like what Limon describes, right? It's, it's not flashy. It's not, it's not actually that dramatic. So I love that, that that stanza, more than the fuchsia funnels breaking out of the crabapple tree, more than the neighbor's almost obscene display, you know, those cherry limbs, those blossoms, shoving their cotton candy colored blossoms to the slate sky of spring rains. It's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. That's what it's like, the slow and quiet change of mind that happens even when you think nothing is happening. The unfurling of a thought from mine, my thought, to mind, mind with a capital M, and from that to life, unbound. But steady, and steady and steady is the only way that it happens. And so sometimes, you know, we wait for the displays, or we have a display and we think, oh, that looks pretty nice, and we try to recreate it. But you know, we're the worst judges of really what's happening anyway. I mean, sometimes you tell me nothing's happening, or you wonder if you're doing it right. And what I see is your life unfurling before my eyes. I see you going from fist to open palm. And all because you decided, enough. I want to live my life. I want to live life, period. And I don't have to tell you, you know, the instructions on not giving up, of course, are not in the steps. <coughs> Just as you don't travel or by, by ticking off sites on a map, it's in how you look and how much and how close you're willing to get to that leaf right, and that bloom and the mess and the hurt and the empty. And I don't know about you, but I continuously look for ways to get close to the mess and the hurt and the empty because I don't want to. <laughs> I'd rather not. Thank you very much. But there's no other way. And one way that I see, that I have found, 
that I'm able to do that, you know, to get close, is to look close, to actively look for that wonder, for that joy, because otherwise it's too much. And so again, it's in, in how we look and how close we're willing to get. And maybe also, you know, how much and how often we're willing to say, fine, fine then, I'll take it. Not in resignation, but in a very simple, very ordinary, and very direct seeing that it was always mine to begin with. So to not take it is to not take this. Fine then, I'll take it. And then that next step, I'll take it for more talks to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings or to join her email list please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org